And if you did bring a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to go ahead and grab it and turn over to the book of John, chapter 6, verses 16 through 21, which Rochelle just read for us. Well, good morning. My name is Hunter Hambrick. I oversee community groups here at Providence and just feel so blessed and fortunate to have the opportunity to share with you this morning. Thank you for your prayers and uh, thank you, Josh, as well for that. I'm especially happy this morning because if you were in here a moment ago when we were welcoming guests, uh, not only do I get the privilege of preaching to you, but my mom and dad are in town, who I love very much. And uh, yeah, let's give it up for my parents. Glad they're in town and uh, excited that they can worship with us. And I also want to take a second to honor our leadership. Uh, First Timothy says that those who labor uh, for preaching and teaching in the word are worthy of double honor. And uh, we live in a culture of contempt and anxiety and criticism and accusation and outrage. And I think it's safe to say that we struggle with single level honor, (laughs) much less double honor. And uh, I have many mentors in this room from Juan to Josh, Katie, Jason, Pastor Jeff, so many others. And uh, I think we should just put our hands and thank God for our elders and our leadership here at Providence. Come on, double honor, feels good. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this week, I should let you know that we are smack dab in the middle of a series on the Gospel of John. It's creatively enough called The Gospel According to John. And in it, we're examining what have often been referred to as the seven signs and the seven sayings of Jesus. Uh, John is a book of the Bible, and it's one of four Gospels or eyewitness accounts about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, who lived over 2,000 years ago. And so you may have heard of things like, I am the light of the world, or I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those would be some of the sayings. And then uh, some of the signs of Jesus would be turning water into wine, uh, walking on water like we'll talk about this morning, feeding the 5,000. The entire Gospel of John is highly sophisticated literature, and it's structured around these seven signs and these seven sayings of Jesus. Uh, Last week, Pastor Alvaro spoke about Jesus healing the royal official's son. This week, we're talking about perhaps one of the most famous signs of the Bible, and that is Jesus walking on the water. Um, So if you haven't done so, please turn to John chapter 6. As I was preparing, I was realizing that I've not actually heard that many sermons about Jesus walking on the water. Uh, This is strange because my parents raised me in church. I went to a Christian school, went to a Christian college. I've worked at Christian camps. I was a youth pastor. Now I'm a student at a seminary, and uh, I'm on staff at a local church. So I'm pretty inbred, you might say. And uh, I did the math between Sunday school, youth conferences, all those things I just mentioned, podcasts. I think I've heard conservatively about 1,700 sermons in my life. That's not an exaggeration. That is a cry for help. I I need... (laughs) I need some therapy, y'all. But I struggled to ever really remember hearing a sermon about Jesus walking on the water since Sunday school. Jesus walking on the water is the stuff of flannel graphs and veggie tales. Uh, in fact, most Bible commentaries don't give this account in verses 16 through 21 much attention because they're so focused on Jesus feeding the crowds in the 5,000 in verses 1 through 15, or the I am the bread of life statement, which comes right after uh, in verses 22 through 71. And let's be honest, most pastors don't talk much about Jesus walking on the water because they're talking about Peter walking on the water. Yeah, it's not about Jesus, it's about faith. That preaches better. Uh, Tell me if this sounds familiar. Peter walked on the water and you can too. Get out the boat. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Why did you doubt, O ye of little faith? Get your faith up. See, preaches good. 
Or in the words of theologians Kanye West and The Weeknd in their song, Hurricane. <laughs> Shout out to Donda. Finally free, found the God in me, and I want you to see I can walk on water. Thousand miles from shore, I can float on the water. Father, hold me close, don't let me drown. But if Jesus walking on the water is one of the seven signs that John saw fit to structure his entire gospel around, then why don't we hear it talked about very much? My claim is that I don't think we actually believe it. I would actually say I don't think I believed it in the truest sense of that word belief prior to preparing for this morning. But as a sign of God, what Pastor Jeff said so well a couple weeks ago, this points past itself to something greater of more significance. And I think Jesus walking on the water displays the very heart of God for his people. I want to preach a sermon to you this morning entitled Wild, Wild Heart. Let me pray for us and we'll get going. Father God, thank you for your church, the people of God. Thank you that we get to gather together in every tongue, tribe, nation as a picture of that great day to come when we'll gather around your throne. We thank you, God, that the local church mobilized and transformed is the hope of the world. I pray this morning that you would do what only you can do. Take this simple message, divide it up, tailor it specifically to the lives of those in this room, send it to their hearts, myself included. We love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We live in what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame. In his book, The Secular Age, Taylor describes miracles such as Jesus walking on the water as that which breaks into our strictly material naturalistic worldview with supernatural power and impossibility. An imminent frame is a closed system. We have the blinders of life on. We live in an age of skepticism and contempt, so the willing suspension of disbelief is really difficult for us. The idea of miracles? They defy what philosophers call our plausibility structures of what is even possible. Miracles come in, they confront and reframe what we consider to even be possible. In the words of the literary great T.S. Eliot, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And rightly so, with the prevalence of deep fake videos on the interwebs, conspiracy theories online, disinformation campaigns, we are right to doubt that the miraculous can occur or that what we're hearing from the different news sources is actually true. Uh, in fact, a couple of weeks back, TB12, he who must not be named, the dark lord of the gridiron, the northeast turned southeast killer, the seven ring wraith, the son of Michigan, son of deception, father of lies, serpent of the sports ball. It's all right, Ron. Tom, the goat Brady, posted a video to his Instagram page that immediately went viral. Uh, in it, he's seen throwing a football into a jugs machine. Now, for those unfamiliar with the world of sports, this is a tool that wide receivers especially will frequently use to catch footballs. So Tom is taking the football and throwing it into it when it's meant to throw to the, the catcher. So he's using what has been created for one thing for the opposite effect, clearly demonic. I mean, it's just another, <laughs> another sign. Um, he makes the throw into the machine from about 10 yards away, which is, I mean, that's pretty impressive, but it's not like unfathomable for an NFL quarterback of his stature. But then he does it a second time, and then with the swagger of the most confident man in the world, which he, he is, and Tom Brady's awesome. He, he really should have that kind of confidence. The 44-year-old TB12 throws from 20 yards away, and then the cannon falls to the ground. Uh, Brady gave the rub by tagging a professional video editor, and it was later revealed that he likely used a green screen to cover up the machine, and then a dummy threw the ball to him in reverse. Uh, so you can watch the video and figure out 
for yourself. But what made the video go so viral is that Tom Brady is really, 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 really good at throwing footballs. Like maybe the best to ever do it, no conversation. And so there was a moment of disbelief. Like, did he, did he really do that? Because if anyone could, it would have been Tom Brady. It defied our beliefs. In our passage, we have a story of Jesus, a good teacher, a great religious leader, a miracle worker, no doubt. By all accounts of first century history, he regularly did the impossible, healing the sick, casting out demons, caring for the poor, but a water walker? It's a deep fake, many may have said. That's why so many skeptics are quick to posit that Jesus was not actually walking on the water. The disciples were hallucinating all together as a group at once doesn't seem very likely. Or maybe Jesus didn't walk on the water. Perhaps he walked by the water or alongside the water, and the disciples just couldn't quite make out whether he was on the lake or on the shore. Well, I want to break into our imminent frame this morning and offer a third option. What if Jesus isn't just a man or a teacher or a good religious leader? What if he's exactly who he said he is? What if he is God made flesh? What if the significance of this sign is that the transcendent has now become imminent. The far off has come close. You see, one of the benefits of having four gospel accounts is that we get different perspectives, like looking at the same diamond, but from different angles. And uh, in Matthew chapter 14, we read the account of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. But then in Mark chapter six, we get a similar passage. I actually think it's probably the same scene as what we're reading in John. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to read this to kind of give you another perspective as we're navigating this story. Verse 45 says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, that's like 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them, walking on the sea. And this is funny. He meant to pass by them, like I'm just going to keep rolling. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished. And it says this, verse 52, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Well, you don't have time to resolve all the questions presented in Mark's account, but I, I wanted to read it to kind of give us a more full orb picture, kind of situate ourselves into the landscape. Uh, John's passage is the view of the disciples. Mark's is the view of Jesus, and I think it's helpful. Uh, Mark isn't writing a different scene. He's just writing with a different perspective. Uh, after all, the Gospels are theological biographies. They're true. They're eyewitness accounts. They're reliable, to be sure. But each writer comes with his own emphasis and things that they want to focus on. It also shows that Jesus walking on the water isn't random or an interruption to the feeding of the 5,000 and then the I am the bread of life statement, right? Those go together. Uh, he's multiplying bread. He's calling himself the bread. But what does walking on water have to do with either of those? I believe it's central to it. So with this background in mind, I want you to approach John chapter six and ask the question, what do you do when Jesus hasn't shown up? What do you do when Jesus hasn't shown up? Verse 16 through 17 reads, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. 
At this point, when Jesus appears, we know the disciples are about halfway through the middle of the lake. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' time. So in John's gospel, it says that uh, they're going to Bethsaida, but in, or I'm sorry, in Mark's gospel. In uh, John's gospel, it says that they're going to Capernaum. So those are really about a mile or two apart, so that doesn't seem like too much of a discrepancy for me. But the Sea of Galilee itself is about uh, seven miles by 12 miles. So just for reference, the length of the Sea of Galilee is about the length of Chatfield and Cherry Creek Reservoir combined. So just picture that. I don't know if you've ever boated across one of those lakes. I did this summer with some friends, and uh, it doesn't take very long if you're in a ski cruiser, but combine the lengths of those lakes, and just imagine you are rowing with all your might. It's night, and you are just slogging it out from sunset until nearly 6 a.m., and uh, they weren't exactly in a pontoon boat. This is a picture of a fishing boat from the first century that was discovered on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was excavated and preserved and can now be seen in a museum in the Middle East. Uh, the remains of the boat are 27 feet long and seven and a half feet, now known as the Jesus boat or the Sea of Galilee boat. Um, it, I should be clear, it has no known historical connection with Jesus or the disciples, but it's actually dated to about 40 BC, the time of this scene, and it's based on radiocarbon dating and some items found on board. Uh, the evidence shows repeated repair, and what happened was uh, the, whoever owned this boat, the fishermen, they decided to sink it to the bottom of the lake, and there it was covered with mud and was prevented uh, bacterial decomposition because of all the algae, which uh, I don't know, that's, that's, that's kind of cool. At the beginning of the pandemic, a recurring phrase I heard was, we may all be in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. True of COVID, true of life. This was the idea that we're all facing the same novel coronavirus, but not all of us because of economic and financial disparity have the same resources to navigate the pandemic. So I want to ask you today, what's your boat like? What boat are you in this morning? Because the boat that you're in may determine the stress of the storm. There's something called the Holmes Raw Stress Inventory, and uh, it's just a fancy way of saying that it's a stress test, and it looks at different types of life events which occur that could be considered uh, pretty stressful. Uh, so it's weighted from 10 to 100 points. At the very top, 100 points is the death of a spouse. Maybe, you know, nothing more tragic or difficult or stressful even feels like a weak word to talk about something like that. Uh, 10 points on the lower end, 11 points is something like a minor traffic violation. Uh, 12 points is holidays with your family. And uh, you might be like, nah, man, like 55 points is more like holidays with my family. Uh, <laughs> And I, I, I joke about the holiday thing, but it's not, not all of these events are actually bad. They're just stressful. They take energy out of you. Energy goes out of you. Um, let me tell you, though, if you're in a storm, I highly recommend taking this test because if, it's if you score 150 points or less, it actually says that you're, you're doing pretty good. Uh, the correlation to health, physical and mental health breakdown later on is, is pretty low. But if you're in the 150 to 300 point range, again, it takes these individual categories, adds them up. That's how you get your total score. Uh, if you take it and it's 150 to 300, you actually have a 50% chance of physical and mental health breakdown in the next two years. 
Um, but then again, if it's 300 points or more, your, your likelihood of having a breakdown physically or mentally actually increases to 80%. Again, that's the Holmes raw stress inventory. So perhaps a better question to ask then, what do you do when Jesus doesn't show up is what do you do when Jesus doesn't show up, the wind and the waves are against you, you're in a pretty bad boat. And according to Mark's gospel, Jesus is the one who sent you into the storm in the first place. Some of us here this morning are feeling the cumulative effects of fighting the very battle God sent us into. Maybe a good battle, maybe a right battle, may even be a justified battle. But for whatever reason, Jesus has not shown up yet. Look at verses 19 through 20. It says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Second question I'd like to ask of the text this morning is what do you do when Jesus does show up? The phrase, do not fear or do not be afraid, that phrase appears in scripture uh, at least 365 times in the Bible. So you can have that for at least every single day of the year, you can tell yourself not to be afraid. That the admonition is there daily if we want it. Yet I'm convinced that all of us, whether we admit it or not, whether it's obvious to others or kind of shoved down, we all struggle with fear in a very, very real way. Why? Well, partly it's biological, right? Flight, fight, freeze. It's part of our genetic makeup. It's in our wiring. Fundamentally though, I think that fear comes from the belief that something more powerful than me is out to get me and cause me harm. For many of us, the predator of fear takes the form of rejection, failure, being found out, being alone, being taken advantage of, old age, decaying body, not accomplishing all that you set out to do, the future, the fear of having your motives questioned and your reputation attacked, spiders, clowns, the color yellow, that's, that's a real fear, by the way. It's uh, xanthophobia. Um, but whatever we're afraid of, we think something or someone in the world is out to get us and do us harm. That's what is so incredibly interesting about this passage, Providence, is that as bad as the wind and the waves are, the disciples aren't actually afraid of the wind and the waves. They're afraid of him. So maybe a better question to ask then, what do you do when Jesus shows up might be, what do you do when God God comes to get you. Look at him. We say Jesus is walking on the water, but that's really not accurate. Jesus is walking on the storm. He has proven his power by commandeering the creation he made, walking on the very water he spoke into existence. A commentator said that in the Old Testament, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha all parted bodies of water, but only God treads upon the water. Job chapter nine, verses six through eight, if you're curious. He's the most powerful. Therefore, Christ is the only one with the right to audaciously say, do not fear. Do you get that? He just proved his power. He's multiplying fish and loaves. He's about to say, I'm the bread of life. And here he is walking on the wind and the waves. He has all the power, all the authority. He is the only one who has the right to say to you and to me, don't be afraid. For all the jokes about seminary being a cemetery where faith goes to die, uh, I have found quite the opposite. My short time at Denver Seminary has been incredibly invigorating and life-giving for my faith. 
And uh, one of the benefits of attending seminary is that you get to learn the original languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. They're languages that scripture was written in. Uh, the rabbis used to say that reading the Torah in translation is like kissing your new bride through the veil. Uh, not quite the same. And uh, a, a good bit of intent is uh, destined to get lost in the process. Uh, this cannot be truer of our passage. You see, while I've been assigned one of the seven signs of Jesus, this is actually the very first I am statement of Jesus in John's gospel. I get a bonus. When his disciples are fearful and at their wits end, utterly exhausted from all their effort at rowing, Jesus approaches their boat in the middle of the night and says to them, ego and me, I am. If you know your Bible, you know the name of God that he used to reveal himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And notice what Jesus says next, do not be afraid. What? Of Yahweh? Of the creator God? of the one who owns the host of heaven's armies, of the one who can summon fire down from heaven and consume our sacrifices, the one who, if we enter into his temple and sanctuary unclean, we could die in his presence, that we're not worthy. Do not be afraid. How could this be? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The transcendent became imminent. The far off drew near. The holy embodied love. The one who spoke every molecule of water in that lake into existence is now standing on top of it with skin and bone and muscle and sinew. And he's letting his disciples know, because I have all the power in the world, you have no reason to fear life, death, hell, the grave, or anything else. Amen. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that his heart for them was wilder than the storm they faced. More startling than Jesus walking on the water was his wild love for them, his utterly non-condemning posture toward his fearful and faithless followers. More startling than the wind and the waves was that Jesus could say, it is me, don't be afraid. John the apostle, I think, must have remembered that day out on the lake when later in his life he would write, such love has no fear because perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Finally, as we close this morning, a third question we may ask the text based on verse 21 is, will you take Jesus into your boat? This is a photo by Rembrandt dated from 1633. It's entitled Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It was stolen in 1990 from a museum in Boston and is yet to be recovered, but it's a pretty powerful image, I think. Um, Rembrandt was born in the Netherlands in 1606. If you didn't take art history, neither did I. Looked it up, shout out to Wikipedia. Throughout his life, he had been through some storms. Three out of four of his kids died. Then his wife died. Then his mom died. 
One of the greatest painters in history actually lived an incredibly tumultuous and stormy life. And this scene paints that crisis, so much so that Rembrandt actually painted himself into the photo. I don't know if you can see it, but he's right here holding on to his hat and holding on to the rope. He's the only individual in the scene looking out on the audience. How about you? Where are you in the boat this morning? Are you like the guy in the back who's kind of differentially holding his hands resigned to the storm? Are you like the people at the front of the boat, like really valiantly, but honestly kind of vainly trying to fight the wind and the waves? Are you like the people sitting down at Jesus' feet, praying, ignoring the turmoil around you? Are you like this guy kind of in the top right over there who's, he's close to Jesus, but he's actually just looking the other way. Regardless of where you are on the boat, Christ wants you to take him in. You may be focused on the storm, but Jesus is the only one in the storm who is serene and calm because he's not focused on the storm. I think he's focused on your fear. Again, just to recap our narrative this morning, it's evening, it gets dark, the disciples get into the boat, Jesus hasn't shown up, wind and the waves start growing, they see Jesus, they grow afraid, he says, it's me, don't be afraid, they receive him into the boat and immediately they get to their desired destination. What is that? The very thing that the disciples resist in the first place, Jesus, is the only one who was able to get them where they needed to go. I think that's true for our lives as well, is that whatever fear that you're feeling this morning, you're thinking about it right now, it's in your mind's eye, it kept you up last night as you were trying to fall asleep. That fear, I believe, Providence, is God's very invitation for your life to himself. He wants to draw you into himself. More often than not, we are fighting the solution. The very thing we fear is also God's very invitation for our lives. This uh, all came to a head for me a couple years ago when um, I uh, went to counseling and started unearthing some of my people-pleasing tendencies, my desires to uh, be right, to be good enough, to perform, uh, to please people, a lot of fear of man. And I had a great counselor and he said, Hunter, you need to learn how to feel your feelings because whenever we bury our emotions, we bury them alive which was his counselor way of saying that whatever doesn't get addressed gets suppressed. It gets pushed down. And sooner or later, whether you like it or not, it is going to come up in some sort of way. James Baldwin, the great African-American novelist and civil rights activist says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Not everything that is faced can be changed may not be able to change the storm this morning, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So I wanna ask you, are you facing your fears? Are you burying them alive? Because whatever it is that you fear in this moment, it might just be Jesus's invitation to you to take you where you need to go next on your spiritual journey. Henry Nouwen says, our fear of illness, death in the future takes away our freedom and gives our society the power to manipulate us with threats and promises. When we reach beyond, or I might say through our fears to the one who loves us with an everlasting love, then oppression, persecution, and even death are unable to save us or control us. You see, I think, I think the opposite of fear isn't faith. 
if by faith we mean a blind allegiance and acceptance of what's to come next, I think the opposite of fear is actually a real acceptance, radically accepting, living in and with the world around us, whether we like it or not, because reality is the one place where God is, right in the middle of our storm. So I want to invite you this week, Providence, to invite Jesus to silence the wind and the waves of your heart. In order to silence the internal noise, sometimes we have to silence the external noise. So I want to challenge you as much as you're able, whether it's each day this week or just once this week, take 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, get alone, get quiet before God, breathe deeply, inhale, exhale. Let the the emotions of your troubled heart surface. That's okay. Ground yourself in the welcoming embrace of God and ask yourself, is this something I'm fighting? Come on, everybody, put your fist up. Is this something I'm fighting? Is this something I'm running from? Is this something I'm brushing off? Or is this something I'm accepting? Finally, you may ask in desperation, but why? Why should I accept these fears? Why should I accept that God has my best interests at heart? Why should I not be afraid when fear is all I've ever known my entire life? While it is true that Jesus walked on the water, it's also true that there's a day when he did not. On the cross of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God sank into all the pain and death and wrath of his father, not just for you, but instead of you, he sank in your place. And because he experienced the ultimate rejection and wrath and pain and punishment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You and I never have to fear that we will. We can know on the cross of Jesus Christ, his it is I turned to it is finished. And because Jesus willingly plunged into the depths of pain, grief, sorrow, and punishment that our sins deserve, you can know his welcoming embrace for you. I wanna pray for us this morning. I'm gonna invite the worship team up as we close. We're gonna close with a song. But if you wouldn't mind just bowing your heads and closing your eyes, I wanna pray a prayer, a blessing over you. And if you feel comfortable enough, you can open up your hands in that accepting posture, much like you're receiving a gift. And after service today, we'll have some of the prayer team down front. I'll be down front as well. And if you have never welcomed Jesus, if you have never received Jesus into the boat of your life, so to speak, I would love to pray for you this morning that that could happen. But let me pray for us as we close and the band leads us in a final song. Father God, thank you that you are more powerful than anything that we could fear. Thank you that you are more loving than anything we have ever known. Lord, I pray that this week, whatever fears that we're facing, I know I have a couple right now in my heart, that Lord, you would calm those fears and that God, it wouldn't be just a blind acceptance and ignoring, but instead we could look reality in its face and see through it and see the invitation, the welcoming embrace that you are having for us. That we can know God, that as much as we wanna welcome you, you have already welcomed us and wrapped your loving arms around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.